It's time to explore and find the answers you've been searching for with the new 2023 Data Dive data sets. The MGMA Provider Compensation and Production data set is one of the most comprehensive data sets in the industry, providing hospital and physician-owned practice data and compensation benchmarks for medical directorship, on-call, academic, and starting salaries. The 2023 data set represents nearly 190,000 providers from 6,800 groups spanning 250 specialties. With this valuable data, you can attract and retain the highest quality providers, drive more revenue through productivity, and keep costs contained. Learn more by visiting mgma.com slash data dive. Healthcare is complicated, but you don't have to navigate the complexities alone. Care Allies collaborates with physician organizations to solve some of the toughest challenges on the path to value-based care. As your organization works to effectively manage your more vulnerable patient populations, enhance outcomes, and improve data analytics, Care Allies brings the people, technology, and processes to support you so you can focus on practicing medicine. Visit careallies.com to see how they can help to radically simplify value-based care. Hi, this is Daniel Williams, Senior Editor at MGMA and host of the MGMA Podcast Network. Today, we're joined by Rochelle Darty, Chief Executive of PS&D. Rochelle, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be here, Daniel. Yeah. So you are the Chief Executive for Provider Solutions and Development. So for our audience, just tell us a little bit about the company. Who is PS&D? What do you all do? Yeah, great. Thanks. You know, quick background. We recruit for over 100 organizations nationwide, and that includes our parent company, Providence, in its seven-state western footprint. But in addition to that, we work with other big national health systems. We work with community health clinics, academic medical centers, regional medical groups, small medical groups, as well as public health organizations across the country. Okay. Well, um, just a little background about MGMA. Our audience is made up of medical practice leaders. Um, I've talked to a lot of our uh, listeners offline and they could be physicians, they could be nurses, they could be coming up from that business side of the practice as well. So give us an idea, how does PSD support their challenges, whether it be with recruitment, retention, patient access, care, any of those items? Yeah, so we really do focus, we have a laser focus on physician and APC attraction, that recruitment piece, as well as retention. And that's really full cycle. Um, you know, I think the main differentiators between us and other recruitment organizations, you know, firstly, being born out of and continuing to work within a large healthcare provider company, we really have an 
a bird's eye view into the daily challenges that are faced by um, both medical groups as well as the hospitals that we support. And I think that allows us to wear truly that consultative hat in our day-to-day partnerships. Not, you know, I think that we do that in such a way that really makes all the difference in bringing a group of physicians or APCs into organizations who are you know, aligned culturally and also who will stay. I think the second piece and another huge differentiator is uh, we do not pay our recruiters on commission. We really want that match between partner and candidate to speak for itself and to be lasting. And so, you know, to us, the incentive is wrong when we look to pay our folks on a per placement. And so what we look at instead is our entire organization is bonused on on overall NOI as as well as uh, quality indexes that focus around our candidate and our partner satisfaction. So I think that holistic approach allows our team to really be empowered to choose the right physician rather than Mm -hmm. that first one who might sign on. And so I think medical practice leaders really do benefit from that long-term fit that we bring. Okay. Now we jumped right into uh, the company itself, but let's just take one step uh, back a little bit or more drill down a little bit about you. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe a little bit about your background and where your focus is at the company. Yeah, so uh, my title is Chief Executive. I have been with the organization in its many iterations for just shy of about 20 years, and that has been in everything from a on-the-ground recruiter, recruiting for some of our very, very rural, tough-to-fill areas like Alaska and Montana, um, all the way to our spin-out as a not-for-profit LLC over six years ago. And um, I sit in Seattle, Washington, and my team sits all over. Uh, We have large hubs in Seattle and Portland, but really are across the country in terms of caregivers. And that matches as well the the geographies that we recruit for well. I wanted to ask you then, since you have been there a little bit, you've been there through the pandemic. uh, This is probably, (laughs) I wouldn't say a dumb question, but maybe an obvious question. Did stuff change in the recruitment side of things, uh, you know, once the pandemic really hit and how did that look? Yes, you know, everything changed, I think, in healthcare, you know, very acutely at first. We uh, shut down almost all recruitment um, at first. You know, hospitals saw just a huge decrease in um, surgeries and in all of those things. And so hospital revenue fell pretty precipitously. And so that, of course, led to, you know, a lot of angst. Um, And so we um, dealt with that first year, really some huge swings, upswings and downswings, um, both in, you know, needing to find critical care physicians, as well as putting a lot of uh, specialties in particular things like surgical specialties, et cetera, on hold. So huge, huge change there. And I think the other piece that really has impacted our work there, we were already seeing uh, the the huge issue of burnout prior to COVID, but COVID really did provide an opportunity to 
shine laser focus on that from not just an organizational point of view where our organizations were just incredibly stretched, but also, you know, providers who were maybe sitting at home furloughed had time to really think about what they wanted out of the, you know, their practice and their life. And so we saw just a lot of physicians who maybe were, were hanging in there pre-COVID um, come back to us with either complete career changes, wanting to move out of clinical into administrative work, or, you know, a lot of shifting from full-time to part-time, from part-time to locum tenens, et cetera. So just a lot of shifts across mm -hmm. that. Um, you did mention burnout, and obviously that is becoming, unfortunately, synonymous with healthcare workers right now. So there's the burnout side of it, but talk about the the actual cost, whether that's the personal cost, the provider cost that uh, practices are facing in relation to burnout. Yeah, you know, it is it is really tough to um, to quantify, but we see the numbers that, um, you know, right now, almost half of clinicians, and that's both physicians as well as APCs are reporting high levels of burnout. Uh, it's 46% to be exact, another 35% saying they're experiencing modern burnout. And I think the most telling is that less than 20%, only 19 reported no or minimal burnout. And so that, when you look at that from a overall cost to both hospitals, as well as the healthcare system at large, you look at, if you combine turnover and that lost productivity, um, just shy of $2 billion annually wow. that we are looking at. Okay. Wow. That is just staggering. Um, now I'll shift gears of our focus a little bit to the patient side. Uh, your team and I had been communicating back and forth. They'd shared a McKinsey study with me that really looked at burnout and how that's impacting patients as well. Uh, tell our audience about that. What, what stood out to you from that study? What, what were some of the <laughs> data points or just anecdotes there that really uh, got your attention? Yeah, you know, I think that the numbers really were the were the the story there. Um, they looked at almost sixty percent of practices that report uh, that reported out through there, and they had a pretty big in had to change their care model due to staffing constraints, whether that be on the provider or the the nursing side. And when you look at that and kind of drill in a little bit, the numbers don't get much better. 48%, um, so almost half have reduced that inpatient capacity and 43% have reduced operating room capacity. And when you think about, you know, from a hospital perspective that that operating room is often where any sort of margin they might be able to make it is made. That's really telling given how small margins already were pre, you know, pre uh, a lot of this, uh, this burnout and mm -hmm. the subsequent vacancies. In addition to that, if you look at emergency rooms, uh, almost 40% have seen an increase in diversion times, and almost 40% of hospitals are seeing an increased length of stay. So it's really across the care continuum, as well as really at that beginning access point that we're seeing just um, huge pieces. And I think that study really illuminated well um, um, some of just the, yeah, the downstream impacts to our communities that that, it, that are being um, being 
the light is being shown on now. Mm -hmm. Um, For our listeners, I will share a link to that McKinsey study. Great. Your team had also shared with me uh, a Deloitte study as well uh, that looked at a lot of these issues yeah. and I'll share a direct link to that as well. So that's great. Yeah. That's got a lot of great burnout information in it. Right. Right. Now we, uh, you know, if it leads, it bleeds. So we started out here talking about all the <laughs> difficulties and the challenges, but you guys really do have some solutions that we've talked about and shared offline. Want to address those as well. So let's hit a couple of different aspects here. The first one I want to ask you about is um, what are some best practices in the hiring process where you do see uh, medical groups finding success? What are some of those processes there? Their best practices. Yeah, you know, that's great. I think that uh, one of the pieces that's really important to remember, especially where the supply and demand is so off whack, is that it's incredibly tempting for our practices to look at that first person who shows a modicum of interest and um, try to fill the role there. And I think that um, that's really short-sighted and Mm -hmm. we end up seeing, uh, you know, what happens there and, and that ends up turning over whether involuntary or voluntary and that turnover costs even more. And so, you know, I think one of the first best practices is really knowing what you're looking for from a practice perspective, as well as a cultural fit perspective and, and not doing, you know, not doing what is tempting to do, which is um, hire whoever is, is licensed and available, but really, um, really doing your due diligence there. I think the other piece that is a best practice that we work a lot with our, um, with our different groups with is to be reminded that when you bring a candidate out, you're really recruiting their entire family. Mm. And so during those site visits and those interviews, it is as important to ensure that the partner and the family has their questions and concerns answered, whether that be you know, uh, community faith systems, schooling, uh, other types of jobs and employment that might be available. And, you know, answering those is as important as really um, that candidate piece and and sometimes even more so, frankly. And so I think that's a a huge best practice that we we consult a lot around. And then I think the um, last piece maybe I'll highlight is one that I think is very much underutilized in almost all organizations across the board, and that's internal referral sources. You know, your practicing physicians and APCs have great networks, whether it be where they trained or former employers, especially in their first few years out of training. And I think most of the groups we work with leave this candidate pool completely untapped. Um, and I think often it's because they think that if they can't afford a to fund a formal program, that they really can't tap into that. But, you know, sometimes something as easy as a quarterly email prompt is enough to keep those flowing. And so, and I think that's just a huge piece of it. The plus side in addition with those internal referrals are that often these candidates come already with a kind of a sense of the values and missions, and they have a connection to the org. And so that really helps not just with the attraction, but also on the retention side. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Now, another topic area that we had discussed offline is dealing with 
feedback loops with employees. Talk about what you mean by that and and how that can be successful uh, for the practices. Yeah, you know, I think for us, and I think this is this is true in whatever organization you're with. You know, for mine, I, I my team is made up of non-clinical people in in general. But um, whether you're looking at a clinically focused organization or one such as mine in the healthcare service space. I think having that feedback loop is essential. And I think what what we have tapped into is in addition to those informal venues, whether it be through one-up supervisors and small group meetings and focus groups, we've also implemented um, an anonymous form that goes out every month. We receive questions and feedback from the team, and we openly address those in every monthly all-team meeting we have. I think um, having some sort of mechanism like that is really key to catch um, potential issues before they become big issues, as well as to continually be improving. And I think um, that's something that in the, the medical space in particular, I think is a big change from uh, maybe Gen X and baby boomer physicians mm-hmm. who would come in, kind of do their job. If they had something to do, they would do it themselves. But, um, you know, our newer physicians and APCs really are looking to um, give feedback and to have it um, acted on to really feel like they're part of a community and a care team that um, is responsive to, to work. And so I think once you have those feed labs, feedback loops um, in place, you know, both formally and formally, it's also crucial really that you act on that. And I think, um, you know, uh, uh, that they can see that their opinions are, are, are listened to. And I think, you know, uh, the flip side of that is I think it's equally important. And I'm, I'm, um, you know, I'm guilty of this myself is when you can't change something to also keep that communication open and let folks know that. And I think, you know, in doing that, the the trust building piece is really a a key component. And so I think for, for your listeners, really uh, often we see in our medical groups that we work in that there aren't a lot of formal or informal uh, communication loops like this. And so building one, um, figuring out what that is, is, is key. I, I would say to, um, to kind of that, that continual improvement that we're looking for. Mm -hmm. Is there any, is there any trying to think of what the right word is pushback or reluctance to get on board with the feedback loop? And if there is, just how do you implement that and get that buy-in where people can feel really comfortable about it and they can feel like, oh my gosh, there's going to be repercussions if I speak up, you know, and and speak my mind and say, hey, I see that there's something going on here that can be improved upon. So how do, how do you overcome that? Yeah, you know, change management is such a, (laughs) such a a tough thing to, um, to get right in an organization. And so I think um, we are always iterating at PSND on how best to do that. Um, Mm. So certainly I don't have any golden bullets, so to speak, but I would say that, um, you know, um, 
uh, having the right people involved in decision-making when Mm -hmm. you're looking at change is just key. And so in a medical group in particular, having, whether it be the MA who's closest to that, uh, Mm -hmm. that workflow or the physician themselves or the front desk person, really getting the, the right people to be, um, to be on board. And part of that change is, is I think the key, you know, that stakeholder piece, um, just, I, I can't speak strongly enough around mm-hmm. whether you, um, are looking at across an organization or in, you know, smaller change initiatives. And so I, I think that's where I would start. Okay. Last thing on this. So what I'm hearing is, is it possible then, or are you suggesting to get maybe an interdepartmental task force? It could be somebody from front desk, somebody from HR, somebody from collections, you know, all these different voices on this so they can get there and align and and really be able to speak and share there. Or I might've misheard you there. What What are your thoughts there? Yeah. You know, it's a great question. I think it depends really on what the change is. Okay. I think, you know, um, upstream, I think the, the, opportunity is who is going to be impacted, whether that be to your point, the back office, the front office, the, the, you know, the care team themselves, um, and whoever is impacted, I think having them involved in both kind of the maybe brainstorming that's required on the front end, as well as some of that implementation work that goes into it, uh, is key. And then you can um, also, those tend to be those early adopters who are going to get right. the rest of the team on board. And so, yeah, dependent on the project, absolutely. It might be that every, you know, you're going to need someone from every single um, component. If you're looking at something like an EMR switch, right? That's kind of a perfect example, I would say, of of your, of where you're going with that. Okay. Last solution I want to address is compensation. I know that the MGMA audience, they really do look at that, the business of healthcare. They want to look at that bottom line. They also want to look at like, how do we spend so much time recruiting? Um, Compensation packages can come into play. Also the retention of great employees, you want to keep them there. So what are some tips and tools and tricks and other things to build a compensation package that makes people want to stay for that side of it, for that compensation side, as well as what the culture may be. But, you know, money does talk. um, And not just the just the money itself, but those overall packages that uh, can really attract people. What are they looking for right now? I know I threw a lot at you, but uh, what can you share with us there? Yeah, it is. This is definitely the piece that we are called to to talk about and consult around a lot informally with the groups we're with, because, you know, I think when we are talking retention and attraction, you have um, docs who tend to be very satisfied with the the status quo of work RVU, um, pay per click, pay per per action. And so we are seeing more and more, and especially in um, kind of the COVID exodus, that was one of the big pieces is how do we get off this hamster wheel and start moving towards what we were, you know, what we were inspired to do when we went into medicine. And so that shift from, from work RVU to value 
value-based modeling is just something that we're hearing on both sides is a huge need. Um, and, and I think it's really being acutely heard at that, um, those folks coming out of training are Gen Y and Gen Z who um, just don't get it, don't want to get it, and are really... Uh, picking preferentially providers who have already looked at salary plus type models, value-based care type models. And so that would be one piece. If you are still paying on pure production or, you know, 80% right. more or more production, I would look at um, shifting that if you're looking to attract um, the, the, this next generation. Mm -hmm. I think the obvious piece, you know, your package needs to be competitive regardless of what it looks like. And so right. making sure that you're using you know, MGMA puts out great data, looking at all those different annual data surveys and see how not just the compensation, but also your overall benefit package right. compares to your regional benchmarks, as well as kind of the overall uh, specialty. Um, and then I really think about, you know, just evaluating the entire job you're asking your provider to do and what should that look like? You know, when you look at primary care right now, mm -hmm. the job has really shifted and COVID um, made this uh, shift happen much more quickly than it otherwise would to um, less uh, coming into the office and more either telehealth or even, you know, working through the EMR to give right. care. And so how do you work that into a compensation package in a way that um, that allows the the provider to 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 feel the full uh, the full benefit of what they're doing. And I think the other piece that um, when you try to put all of that together, often what ends up happening is really, really complex packages. Right. And um, I think that that's another kind of no-no. We really look to not just a transparent package, but also one that can be explained uh, by a, a layman. And I think uh, when when we have a, a company that we're working with and they say, oh, don't worry about it. Our salary package is too complex. We'll need to talk about that. So we don't want to share it because you'll get it wrong. That's a, that's a yellow flag for us. <laughs> um, we say, you know, if our recruiters who do this every day can't understand the package, a doc coming out of training is really going to give you kind of the wide-eyed stare. And so um, I think that that's just a really big piece about it. Um, and then last and not least, I would say it is really key to to look at what you are offering in terms of loan repayment. Mm -hmm. That can be both from the national perspective and what may, may be possible from a state or even local perspective, but also just what you're willing to put out there yourself. A lot of organizations we look at might have sign-on bonuses or retention bonuses, and we really encourage them to look at those and include or even sometimes substitute loan repayment payment there. Mm -hmm. You know, I think um, that's key both for that attraction component, but also it's got a really great retention built in. We see a lot of groups that will put um, loan repayment that's paid back over years of service. And so you're kind of building in some retention there as well. So those are key pieces, I think, that um, are really tough sometimes to mm -hmm. get buy-in across a medical group. But I will tell you that especially this, this newer generation that is coming out, um, they will ask the questions, they will expect the transparency there, and um, they will also push for change if they get hired into your org and some of these pieces are missing.
Okay. So we have talked about the challenges. We've talked about solutions. So once you do have some of those solutions in place, whether it be compensation or the feedback loops or just best practices in the hiring process itself, um, what are some of the KPIs then that practices should be examining to make sure, okay, we've set it up. Now let's measure it. Let's see what's working and where we can continue to build upon uh, this success here. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of um, uh, data points we could go to, you know, in the actual recruitment mm-hmm. process, I would look at um, the entire pipeline. So how many folks you are looking at to uh, convert to being actively interested in your position? How many of those folks um, get to an interview? How many of those interviewed actually express interest and are offered contracts? And then certainly kind of the one that's of most value to, um, to the bedside is how many of those convert then to your new employee? And so that funnel pipeline is really big uh, at the front end. And then once you've got them there, I think the big pieces that I would look at is your overall turnover, measuring that from both your physician population as well as your advanced practice clinician population, and really dissecting that. I think that first year turnover, especially amongst APCs, is one that's really been on the uptick the last few years. And so monitoring that and having a plan allows you to then, you know, look at plans that might help uh, mitigate some of that. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, once you get that data, it's going to be hugely key on that qualitative why. And so as you're tracking those numbers, um, you know, getting some data from folks who are leaving that qualitative data of an exit interview, and then being able to use that to shift, whether it be, you know, we were talking about compensation, whether Mm -hmm. it be shifting how you pay the docs or what kind of policies, benefits, um, scheduling part-time to full-time, all of those pieces, I think really come out in a, in a good exit interview process. Um, I would say also the trifecta of satisfaction data is just huge. You know, whether you're looking at your, the patient sat for, for your organization down to the provider level, um, you're looking at the caregiver sat. So how are the MAs that they work with their front office staff, their schedulers, their pharmacy, how are they all feeling um, part of the care team or not? And then also looking at their own satisfaction, being able to measure your physician and provider satisfaction in a way that can kind of tell you a story of whether um, you might be um, having to fill positions sooner rather than later in your group. And then maybe just one I would throw out there that I think a lot of groups are overlooking. I think everyone knows around uh, about the administrative burden of EMRs, but a lot of right. groups are just kind of saying, well, it's just the way it is. Yeah. And I, I, I certainly know what from what we hear when folks call us looking for a new job, EMR is up there at the top of the list. You know, they're going home and charting three, four hours a night. They're charting mm-hmm. on the weekends. Um, and so do you have a way of knowing when your providers are online? You know, are they going home at 4.30 and then back online from 7 to 10? And you can, you know, you can look at uh, stats like that. And often those are the docs who 
are not just going to be burnt out, but then who are going to be leaving. And so I think those are huge pieces that, um, that are worthwhile to, um, set in place, especially if you're doing a lot of the things we talked Mm -hmm. about upstream, you want to make sure that you're able to, um, to, to benefit from all of that hard work. Okay. Final question then you kind of have a blank slate here. So blank canvas to work with. So anything that I didn't ask you want to share about this topic or even any resources, tools, anything else that you want to share with our audience? Yeah. You know, I think maybe first and foremost, I would just say, this is a problem that's going to become more and more acute. This, uh, the, the lack of physicians and APCs for our positions is, you know, it's, it's by 2030 going to look very, very different, uh, across the country in places that right now are already pinched places like primary care places, like, um, some of our key specialties, as we look at the aging baby boomer population, um, all of the medical specialties that um, we already are feeling the pension are really going to be um, even more acute. And so figuring out now some of this, I think is, is uh, you know, the time is now to get these processes in place and to really prioritize this work, um, have partners, whether it be your internal staff, as well as groups like PSD, have those partners that um, will be with you uh, through that so that you can start building pipelines upstream. You know, uh, we work with many of our, of our organizations around what are the community that um, might be feeder hospitals for you and getting into those um, medical schools and those training programs early. And so I I would encourage them to um, really start thinking about this much more proactively than I think uh, our industry has uh, up to now. I would also certainly point them to a lot of the resources that PSD, my organization, has. I think you're going to share out our website. Um, we've got a lot of great uh, content that's original content there that is, you know, whether it be case studies, white papers from our organizations, some of our qualitative and quantitative data that um, research that we've done. It gives some great data points if you're trying mm-hmm. to build some of this. And then um, I would just say, last but not least, you know, continue to reach out and partner uh, or with other organizations. I think a lot of times our groups think that they're in this alone. And um, so any sort of community local groups that you might have, whether it be local chapters of MGMA, whether it be, um, you know, partners like PSD, really work to um, to uh, consider this not as this is my problem alone, um, but how can we really look at this um, holistically and, and, and tackle it together? And so that would be, I think, of the main pieces I would share. All right. Well, Rochelle Doherty, Chief Executive at PSD, I want to thank you for joining us today. And as you mentioned, uh, there will be several links that we will share in the episode show notes. So be on the lookout for that. And thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Great pleasure, Daniel. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com slash membership.